What's up, everybody? Welcome to this edition of the Moderate Podcast for Sunday, March 28th, 2021. Glad to have you aboard this week. And as always, a reminder to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast catcher. If you don't have a favorite podcast catcher, please check us out on Podchaser. Um, just visit our website, themoderatepodcast.com. Click on the uh, Podchaser link right there on the homepage, and you'll be able to write a review and rate us there. Also, please remember to share the show with your friends and family so that we can continue to build the audience base and get more questions, get more feedback from the audience. That's always a welcome thing so that we can, um, you know, get, get more thought out there. I mean, the more feedback we get, the better off we are. So anyway, glad to have you with us this week. A um, couple of things to get to. Um, remember last week I didn't get to term limits, so we're going to talk about that today. And then we're also going to talk about the uh, shootings that happened over the last you know week, week and a half or so. Um, the first one in Atlanta, and then the um, latest one in Boulder, and so um, <clears throat> we want to we want to get into those things um, today. Um, but I did want to talk about first the uh, little controversy with um, with the media. I, I think more than anything, and one thing that's happening with um, with with that incident where Biden would where President Joe Biden had tripped the state up the stairs and I had mentioned that briefly last week and you know I felt bad for him and everything like that but the the media coverage of that was um, pretty pretty telling in that there wasn't much coverage of it at least on the mainstream media when you think about you know the CNN's MSNBC's, CBS News, Washington Post, LA Times, New York Times. So there was an opinion piece by Bernard Goldberg on the Hill that kind of covered this. I was kind of looking for some feedback on this because um, I, I was wondering how they would cover it because I remember that they made a big deal of the of, of President Trump and the way he walked down that ramp down in West Point back in June. So here's what he has to say. The Daily Mail reports that as of Friday afternoon, this is a week ago this last Friday, the homepages of MSNBC, CBS News, Washington Post, LA Times, and New York Times had no mention of Biden's stumbling incident early in the day at Joint Base Andrews. According to various organizations that monitor the media, CNN, CNN devoted 15 seconds to the incident and MSNBC about a minute. NBC's Chuck Todd's on MSNBC said, we've all run up the stairs and had that moment ourselves. And if you haven't, you aren't a human being. And I talked about that last week, how I, you know, do that quite frequently at my own home, actually. Um, and, you know, Goldberg points it out. Fair enough that the fall appeared to be no big deal and the coverage reflected the insignificance of what happened. And that's true. Um, but compare that to how the media covered Biden's, compare the, how the, the media covered Biden's fall with how they covered Donald Trump's slow walk down a ramp after he delivered a graduation address at West Point in June of 2020. According to the Media Research Center, CNN devoted 22 minutes and 13 seconds to Trump's walk down the ramp, and MSNBC de devoted 28 minutes and 42 seconds to the story. So, um, again, I mean, they, you know, they, they tr when Biden, who is 78, fell, it was treated as simply as a slip. 
and something we've all done at one time or another. But with Trump, who is 74, it was treated as a sign of potential serious health questions. So here's a couple of things that were said during the Trump administration. The New York Times ran Trump's halting walk down ramp raises new health questions as its headline in 2020. Compare that to its headline when Biden fell last last week. Biden is doing 100% fine after tripping while boarding Air Force One. The the Washington Post headline in 2020 was, Trump tries to explain his slow and unsteady walk down a ramp at West Point. But when Biden fell three times in a matter of seconds, the Post headline simply said, Biden stumbles climbing stairs on Air Force One. Now back in 2020, MSNBC Anchor Joy, Joe, Joy Ann Reed tweeted, Serious question, what is going on with him? His supporters have tried to, tried so hard to get the media to question Joe Biden's mental and physical fitness, but they have so often engaged in projection, it seems worth inquiring. Um, and there was a number of people on CNN that, that, that speculated on the story. Um, Allison Camarota um, asked medical expert Sanjay Gupta, do you see something possibly neurological that could be throwing off his balance? Gupta responded that a lot of neuro- neurologists were talking about the situation. Um, uh, political analyst Abby Phillip uh, wondered if Trump was being transparent about his health based on his latest incidents. And uh, political commentator Chris Cezilla said it was an important story because Trump was 74 at the time. We know so little about Donald Trump's past medical history, Cezilla said. As he talked, the on-screen graphic read, Trump's unsteady walk, arm, lift, raise health questions. Then presidential candidate Biden even got into the act saying, look at how he steps and look at how I step. Watch how I run up ramps and he stumbles down ramps. Come on. Um, and, and, and this is a bigger pick. This is a bigger thing, right? I mean, we've always talked about media bias and that's nothing new. Um, Roger Mudd, who was a um, former... Um, correspondent for CBS News, who recently died at the age of 93, told an interviewer on November 18, 2011, a journalist's job uh, is not to march in the parade, but to stand on the curb and report what goes by. An awful lot of people think that we ought to be in the parade and not a disinterested observer. Roger was on to something back then, but television news was more serious in his day and far less partisan than it is today. For too long now, Especially after Trump was elected president, journalists have been marching in that parade without so much as a hint of embarrassment. Roger Mudd was worried about a biased public trying to influence journalists. I'm worried about the opposite, biased journalists trying to influence the public. And I think that there there is something to that. And I think that um, maybe it is what Mudd was worried about a biased public trying to influence journalists. And, you know, it's a, it's a chicken or the egg um, conversation because are we saying that, or we do, do we believe that possibly we know the bias that's out there? We know that there's a lot of political partisanship out there these days and that the media is simply trying to react to that, to that market because there is no market anymore for unbiased journalism. Or have we been in, have people been influenced by how the media covers things, and therefore we have become more biased as a result of that? With 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 what is you know, with what Goldberg is pointing out as the opposite: biased journalists trying to influence the public. 
I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, it, it certainly started under Biden or under Obama. Um, it, it intensified under under Trump, but in the opposite direction. And now with, with Biden, I will say that the media does seem to be pressing his administration a little bit more. They're starting to ask, you know, tougher questions because they're not being as forthcoming as they had promised they would be. And I think that's part of the issue. So anyway, there, there it is. Um, you know, the coverage of, you know, two, this is a good litmus test because it's a very similar incident with what happened in Trump or back in June. And now, you know, nine months later, you have an incident under the Biden administration, very similar circumstances. The coverage is vastly different on these channels. Now, you know, granted, um, I'm sure this was shown plenty of times on Fox News and the white, the right-wing media probably was all over this because they've already been questioning his health, just like the left-wing media has been had questioned Trump's health. So again, the the, the sides have switched, and everything is kind of going the opposite direction of what it was six months ago because there's a different party in the White House, and this is to be expected now. I think we have to just um, expect and, and just just assume that this kind of thing is going to continue to happen. Okay, so I have a clip I want to play. It's about three minutes long, and it has to do with um, with Donald Trump. And last Thursday, this was actually brought to my attention earlier today, um, about some of the things that he had. He had a, a wide-ranging interview with Laura Ingram uh, this past Thursday, um, covering you know Biden's press conference, which I'm not really not going to I'm not going to cover at least this week. I didn't really listen to it. Um, from all the accounts I've heard, it didn't go that well. Um, but I'll have to I'll have to take a listen to it to kind of get a feel for it myself. Um, but he, they also talked about immigration, voting rights, and Laura Ingram actually had to stop him at one point from talking about um, election fraud because, of course, Fox News is being sued right now. So he so she had to kind of kind of guide him in a different direction. But in this three minute clip, she kind of does the same thing. So. I'm going to go ahead and play it, and, and you guys can can be the judge of that. Are you concerned that the U.S. Capitol after January 6th uh, has become a fortress, protecting uh, the Capitol from the people who are supposed to actually be the ones in charge here, not the people who are, uh, are sitting in the Capitol surrounding themselves by razor wire? I think it's disgraceful. It looks for the world to watch Absolutely. It's a political maneuver that they're doing. Uh, it was a zero threat right from the start. It was zero threat. Look, uh, they went in. Uh, they shouldn't have done it. Uh, some of them went in and they're they're hugging and kissing the police and the guards. You know, they they had great relationships. Uh, a lot of the people were waved in and then they walked in and they walked out. I, I want to stop the, the clip there just for a second. Um because this is something that a lot of people in the media picked up on. And it was pointed out, and this was actually why, this was what prompted the, the clip to be sent to me. And, and I think that on the surface, it does sound bad. It's make, he's basically makes it sound like he's downplaying what happened at the Capitol. Um, and, but it does also kind of sort of recognize that some things happened there, but 
you know, they were hugging and, and, and the police and it's, you know, sound like a no big deal. And that's what a lot of the media jumped on. A lot of the left side jumped on, but let's continue playing the rest of the clip and maybe put a little more context on that. And I'll tell you what, they're doing things to those, they're persecuting a lot of those people. And some of them should be, some things should happen to them. But uh, when I look at Antifa in Washington, even when the, what they did to Washington or what they did to other locations and the destruction and frankly, the killing and the beating up of people and nothing happens to them whatsoever. Why aren't they going after Antifa? I watched this gentleman on 60 Minutes the other night. It was horrible what he said. Now, are, you talking about the, now, are you talking about the former prosecutor who's prosecuting yeah, uh, some of the individuals involved knows. in January 6th? But it, right. when you look they, back they all at know what, who I'm talking about, yeah. but he totally sure compromised a, a case. And what he said was so horrible. But they don't talk about Antifa. They don't talk about BLM. They don't talk about any of the other uh, groups that are on the left that are really dangerous, that are very, very dangerous and that truly hate our country. But you would say that people who commit crimes, regardless of what their political affiliations are, should be prosecuted. Your complaint is that yes. the individuals committing the crimes in Portland and Minneapolis, et cetera, are not being prosecuted. I want to clarify that, Mr. President. Absolutely. Are you, what you said is exactly right. I hope that that's what I said, too. Uh, and they should look. They have everybody has to be treated equally. They go after people on the right and in, in spades, and they don't go after people at all on the left. You look at some of the things that happened. Look at Minneapolis. Look at who was arrested. Look what happened. They, they let them out immediately. And by the way, a lot of the politicians that you have right now in office were providing bail money for them, getting them out of jail. But they didn't have to worry about it. For the most part, they weren't even put in jail. They took over Seattle and practically nothing happened to anybody. I mean, they literally took over a big chunk of a major U.S. city and practically nothing happened to those people. And yet I'm constantly seeing where they're searching out people on the right. It's very unfair to this country and there's tremendous anger because of what they're doing. There's tremendous I'm anger. So there it is. And, you know, and, and Laura Ingram, I think, um, stepped in to kind of rescue him in it, it, a little bit there. And, you know, she goes, you know, I want to clarify, Mr. President, that you're saying regardless of what party or, or, or the, what their political affiliations are, if someone commits a crime, they need to be held responsible. And he agreed with that. And, and so when, when I hear that part of it, you know, I don't know whether or not he is actually believing what he's saying or not, or he's just trying to make that comparison. He's just not a very good communicator. I'm sure that's part of it, but I, I don't know. I mean, that after playing the entire clip, I don't feel quite as offended as about what he said in terms of the Capitol riots. Um, I still think he has a lot of responsibility for it um, because of the things that he said that day. And, you know, just like the, the election fraud stuff, which he refuses to give up on, he would have to admit that he was wrong. And this is a person, this is a man that just cannot do that. He is completely and utterly incapable of doing that. 
And so he's going to deflect. He's going to flat out lie. Anything he needs to do so that he doesn't have to admit that he's wrong. And that's part of the issue with Donald Trump, right? I mean, that that is the issue, the main issue that a lot of people have with him is just he's the pathological liar, but also he has such an ego and he's so the ego is so fragile that he has to always be right. So I want I wanted to play that clip and kind of play the whole thing, that whole section to make sure that the context is understood. So this week, um, the, the CDC came out with new guidance on schools to reduce the requirements for social distancing from six feet to three feet. And obviously this is part of the push to get kids into school full time as quickly as possible. And um, I believe that there are plans in our school district to have that happen, at least increase the amount of time that they're on campus, not quite full-time yet, but getting there. Um, And I think that our old school district is even doing that. They're actually back to a hybrid model in person as well, which we were worried that they weren't going to do that. And that was one of the reasons we ended up leaving. Um, Still probably it was a very good decision um, on our part. Um, The school they're at now is great, Um, but that's not to take anything away from the school and the teachers that were teaching them before. I know I talked to the kids before and, you know, especially for the boys, their, their teacher was, you know, struggling with the online um, thing and he'd be the first to admit it, but he was doing the best that he can. And my, my daughter's teacher was doing a really good job with that. And the, te- the kids' new teachers are doing a really good job as well. Um, we've been very impressed with them so far. But that doesn't stop the our good friends over at the United Teachers of LA. Um, you know, follow the science until the science no longer agrees with your agenda. And uh, they said, no, we're, we're, we're sticking to six feet. We think the CDC is making a mistake. Um, you know, we, we were supposed to listen to them. We were supposed to listen to follow the science. And now the scientists that are experts in this are saying three feet's good. And now they're deciding that, eh, that's not going to, not going to fly with us. And they're going to continue to have this hybrid model and have kids in only part time. And because they can't have, they have to reduce the class sizes enough to allow for six feet of social distancing. And, you know, for me, I don't know if, you know, I think for, especially in, in, in the LA Unified School District, this is a problem because you have a very economically challenged district. Uh, a lot of areas in LAUSD are, um, you know, the, a lot of the kids are having a hard time with this learning environment. And I think part of this is because if you're on a part-time schedule, it's going to be really hard to do state testing. And the last thing that LEUSD or the, the teachers union wants to have happen is to have standardized testing and show that these lockdowns that'll actually have given empirical evidence, empirical data that will show that these lockdowns were detrimental to children's education. Because the whole time was that they're still working hard for the kids and that everything's going to be just fine. And that this model is okay. And if they were proven to be 
detrimental to the point where it's affecting kids' scores, it's affecting their mental health, um, they probably, and rightfully so, feel like they might get blamed for that. And like Donald Trump, they don't want to be wrong. And so they had just, you know, rejected, um, we had talked about a few weeks ago where they rejected the union's um, plans and then subsequently approved them once they were, once their demands were met, basically. And that was a part of it too. And so once that, that guidance changed, they decided, no, we're going to stay with what we're got, with what we did. So, because we know better, we know better. That's the attitude of UTLA. Um, so good freaking job, guys. Excellent, excellent job. Um, term limits. So let's talk about term limits on, on the program today. Now, I, I just want to throw this out there just to start the conversation. So one of the things we talk about is the deeps, or we've heard talked about, is the deep state. Well, it's pretty interesting that the deep state just happens to reside because the deep state is supposed to be these federal agents, you know, people within these federal agencies that are actually really running the show, right? The deep state happens to reside in the branch of federal government that has term limits. Just saying. Um, I am not a big fan of term limits, at least... Well, what I will say is I think that people, the effectiveness of term limits is way overblown, or at least the people's view of them. The people think that you need to limit the terms and that would make Congress more effective. But I don't think that is true because you can look at places that have done term limits. California is a great example of that. And how can we argue that the state politics have gotten better as a result of term limits here in California. As a matter of fact, they've gotten worse. And usually it's people, It's um, it tends to be comes from more conservatives, uh, more small, limited government people. And I think, again, I think it's one of those things that the intention is good, the, the, the concept in, their, in people's minds seems like a good one. But once you actually start looking at how it's operated in real life, because again, we have plenty of examples to look at. We can look at state governments that have done this and tell whether or not they've done a better job or not. And I think in California, politic, just from a purely political standpoint, it's probably hurt the Republican Party more than it's helped them because you may have had a, a strong Republican in a district that got termed out and was subsequently placed replaced by a or Democrat. Because, again, running against an incumbent is very, very difficult. And that's part of the argument for term limits. <clears throat> and despite Congress having a very consistently low um, approval rating, the, um, the number of incumbents that continue to get reelected is a very, very high number that would be otherwise reflective of a entity that's doing a good job. But again, incumbents have a lot of advantages. They get, they have name recognition. They have the ability to say that they're already a congressperson. And a lot of people are apathetic when they vote. 
And so <clears throat> I just wonder, it's, it's obviously a, there's a, there's a huge disconnect between the voting, the, the voting public and the job that Congress and, and, and how things actually work. It, it's just amazing that I don't know who's taking these polls about Congress doing such a bad job, and yet people continue to reelect their congressperson as if they don't, it's almost as if they don't understand how this thing works. So basically, in order to make up for that apathy and that lack of education on the issues, the lack of understanding what's going on and the lack of any effort whatsoever, we want to take, we want to ensure that our laziness doesn't take over and we need to basically give ourselves a crutch, which would be term limits. Because you have the chance to take the person out of office that's been in there that you don't like every two years. And I think that what you would end up having, you would get a lot more people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Lauren Boebert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera you'd see a lot more of these types of people. And we know that you can see the lack of experience from those types of, you know, the, from those freshman Congress people. And if you were to just blankly implement um, term limits, it would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. Because you're, you could essentially replace the entire Congress at one time and the consequences of that could be disastrous because you're going to have a bunch of inexperienced people going into Congress. I mean, if you, you know, everyone thinks that if they were to be elected to Congress, they can just go in and, and, and do a good job. They don't have any idea about how decorum works there and how bills get authored and passed and, and then the consequences of right. Because, you know, you look at, the, some of the California, the referendum process is probably a perfect example as to why you don't want amateurs writing legislation. And because the California Constitution is one of the uh, one of the longest constitutions in the world, and that is largely due to the referendum process. And basically anybody can write a referendum. But if it's so poorly written, it can be thrown out because it didn't, you know, it violated some other part of the state constitution or it was found to be unconstitutional under the federal um, constitution or there's a bunch of, you, you wrote it so vaguely that there's no way to understand what the, what the actual intent was of a law. And so you, get, you end up getting everything in litigation. You don't know how to actually implement the law because you don't understand what they're trying to do in the first place. And so you get all of these unintended consequences. And I think what would happen is if you have a bunch of inexperienced legislators doing the same thing, they're either number one going to have the same issue. They're going to have the, they're going to have poorly written legislation that's um, subject to unintended consequences, subject to challenge in court, subject to um, all sorts of different things. And in in having challenges in implementing it, and or you have to rely 
on experienced staffers. And if you have constant turnover in the Congress, slowly but surely, they're going to become more reliant on those career people in Washington. And if you look at states that have done term limits and have had them for a while, that's what they actually find. So there, there was actually a, um, a research brief from the Public Policy Institute of California back in November of 2004, because California actually did pass um, term limits back in 1990 for legislators. So we've had term limits here in California for 30 years. And like I said, one of the effects of that is that um, we've become more and more democratic because every time a Republican terms out, um, the likelihood of them being replaced by a Democrat is quite high. And, you know, I, you know, are we were going to go, were we going to go that way anyway? Possibly. But it sure did hasten and accelerated that process. And I think that people just are a little bit short-sighted and they think that, you know, it, it seems, like I said, it seems great on paper until you actually go to execute it. And I'm sorry, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but there is something to be said about experience. Experience is important in any job, including being a legislator. It is a job and it is a skill. And part of what gets things done is being able to build relationships and build coalitions and forge those partnerships so that you can have bipartisanship. If you don't have, if you have a finite amount of time that you know you're going to be in Congress, you're also not subject to the voters, especially in your last two years. So, you know, people think that somehow if they're not having to go for if if someone's not having to go for re-election that somehow they're going to then just do the right thing rather than try to get votes well don't you do the right thing to be able to continue to get reelected and what you do for your district you know people talk about oh well there's pork and all this stuff and, and you know one of the things that career politicians do is they try to make deals to get stuff for their district it's like well isn't that what that's the whole point of having the house of representatives they're supposed to represent you. You're supposed to represent your interests. But if they have a finite amount of time there, then they're going to have to be more loyal to the party because they want to be able to be in a position to go after that next gig. Maybe it's going from the House to the Senate, or maybe it's going from the House to a governorship. You know what I'm saying? So they're going to start running for that next office. You know, there's always this assumption that they're going to go to Washington, they're going to serve their terms, and once they once their term's up, they're going to go back to the private sector and forget about politics, as if that's going to happen. And that is very, very naive, I believe, for people to believe that. And again, I think one of the things that um, happens um, is that they become more reliant on staffers and the staffers and, and the people that are working their careers for these politicians actually become more powerful as a result. So, you know, I think that, you know, who's going to be in charge then you, you're going to get more deep state. 
I think that's what will end up happening. You, 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 could, you could get a deep state um, created within the Congress. So again, I think that, yeah, I, I agree that there's some people that have been there way too long. I agree with that. But also, the people that are saying that, all the ones that criticize you know, the Chuck Schumers, the Nancy Pelosi's, even the Joe Bidens of the world, usually they're not the ones from their districts or from their states. You know, everybody that I see complaining about Nancy Pelosi, none of them live in San Francisco. They live in different states. They live in different parts of California, but they don't actually live in her district. And they are like, we need to get rid of Nancy. It's like, well, okay, don't vote for her then. Oh, wait, you can't because she's not your representative. That's why we have the House of Representatives. We don't get to, could you imagine like, we everyone voted for all the representatives. You had to go vote for four hundred thirty-five people. Could you imagine that? That'd be ridiculous. But anyway, I think that again, I think that if you're not, if you know you're not accountable to um, the voters, um, I think that uh, I I don't understand why that will actually make things better. I, I would think that it would actually make them worse. Can you, could you imagine a Donald Trump presidency right now where he's not have he's not he's completely unfettered doesn't have to worry about re-election now having said all that if you were to do congressional term limits here's what I would suggest I mean if that was you know if this was a thing we have to do it all right well here's how I would be more willing to consider it Number one, they would need to they would need to stagger the term and stagger the House. Right now, they have that in the Senate. We have senatorial elections every two years, but only a third of them are up in any any uh, election cycle. All four hundred thirty five are up in Congress or for in the House every year or every two years. So, because um, I think that if you did that, then you would otherwise you'd have a mass change at the end of term limits, because again, we know that a large, a, a very high number of incumbents get reelected. So you're going to have to change how that works. And so I think in order to do that, you need to bump the house terms up to four years. So only, only have half running every two years. So obviously what this would mean is you'd have to have a um, constitutional amendment to make this happen because a lot of some states have talked about doing it at the state level and saying that they're not eligible to run, you know, their representatives are not eligible to run after a certain amount of time. And so states are trying to implement um, term limits at the state level for their representatives, which I think is probably to their detriment because then you lose seniority. If not everyone's going to do it, you have very little incentive to do it yourself because otherwise you're not going to get anything because no one's going to care about you. And seniority is everything when it comes to the Congress. That part, I think, is a little bit um, unfortunate. Um, I think that's that's where it gets a little bit, uh, you know, the 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 old boys, old girls club type of thing. I just don't that part. I don't agree with. But and and maybe that is one benefit of term limits is that you wouldn't do that anymore, and it would actually be about merit versus just seniority. But anyway, I, I don't know. Um, but I think you also have to allow for enough terms to create some experience to work with and build those relationships. I think that's important. And you need to get some seasoning. 
for your legislators because again if you have that constantly constant revolving door you know if they go four two-year terms and they're out that might be enough but it's probably not enough um i would probably do maybe if you're going to do it again i would go to four-year terms and maybe do three four-year terms so it's 12 years that seems like a pretty decent number um but again you could have a lot and a lot of turnover and when your guys when your person's up just just expect that you're not going to get a lot done in your district so anyway that's my my thoughts on term limits i think at the local level they're a little bit more effective um you know like for city councils even county governments i think they're effective there once you get to the state level especially in a big state like california it's not as effective because there's just it's just so complicated. It really, really is, and um, you know, I think people underestimate that. I think they don't understand how complex working in state government or even or especially federal government really is. And I think that's part of the issue is that there's this underestimation as to you know what politicians do and what all the things they have to deal with and why legislation is so long. Again, it's because. You have to make sure you try to cover as much of, of what you're trying to do as possible with trying to address questions that may come up. Try to make sure you define terms in a way that makes sense so that the interpretation piece of it, it makes it clear as to what the intent of the legislation, legislation is and that it's executed effectively. So that's my that's my two cents on that. So... Um, I do want to take a moment at this point uh, to tell you about Podgo. Um, you've heard me talk about Podgo on the show. Um, they help connect you with some great companies to offer you discounts, um, as you've heard. Um, and I know there are a lot of podcasters that listen to my show, so that's why I wanted to share Podgo with you. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast and providing they provide podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you know how much you you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today, become a member, and, and immediately connect with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And when you go and sign up, make sure you add the moderate podcast in the how did you hear about Podgo section on the application. So please go check out Podgo podgo.co today. And we're continuing on to talk about the uh, the the recent shootings and 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 what the different types of controversy that have been have um come up as a result of those. Um so first of all, you had the shooting um, in Atlanta, and this actually happened um, 10 days ago. So it happened before our last show. I didn't mention it really on here, um, and I wasn't sure I was going to talk about it or not, but then you had that Boulder shooting, and that that really made me think, okay, well, I think I need to talk about this. I think I need to address this issue. So let's start with the Atlanta shooting. So basically what in a nutshell, if you haven't already heard about it, there were seven people shot dead. And this shooter, um, a white male, 21 years old, um, targeted massage parlors. Um, 
specifically massage parlors that were run by Asian women. And so the this the the big the big controversy that sparked out of this was um, was this a racially motivated um, attack? Was this a gender motivated attack, or both? Um, because it it came out, um, you know, initially they thought it was Asians because Asians were targeted, and so they thought maybe this has to do with, um, you know, a, a an uptick that we have seen, um, on you know hate crimes against Asians. And so now, first of all, are attacks on Asians up? Yeah, I think they are. And especially thanks to things like the China virus, Kung flu, those kind of things, again, where words matter. And especially, and it's not just words that matter, okay? It's not just, you know, it, it, anybody saying, like me saying words don't have nearly the impact as the president of the United States. You know, if I were to say things like China virus and Kung flu and things like that, people would probably think I'm an a-hole, but they wouldn't necessarily think that they wouldn't have a lot of influence on what people do and how they behave. Whereas when Donald Trump says it, it absolutely does. Um, now, one thing that this can can look at, because again, hate crimes aren't just racially motivated. They can be, there's all sorts of categories, and we're going to take a look at some of those in a second. But in this particular attack, the the the, the shooter talked about having a sex addiction, a, a, um, a sex um, addiction. And so when I hear that, and I hear it being targeting massage parlors, this doesn't make me think about a hate crime. Yes, again, I think there are more and more attacks happening on Asians, and that, and this sparked that conversation. I think that's something that hasn't been covered by the mainstream media nearly as much as we see on other racially motivated shootings, especially when they're involving African Americans. And I think that's partially because Asians tend to not be as socio as, as economically challenged as the African-American community. And so they're not seen as being quote unquote oppressed. But this made the media really look at those things more carefully. But I think that we're missing the boat on what this particular shooting rampage was about. This particular one, I think needs to, we need to look at the real issue here. And the thing that we should be focusing on and that we should be thinking about is what happens at those massage parlors. And I think that if behind behind that, there is a lot of sex trafficking and ex exploitation of women happening. And he targeted these particular establishments because they have that reputation. And they have that reputation because they have the those there are prostitution rings at these locations far more frequently than there are other types of businesses. It is a huge issue. I know this because of the line of work that I'm in. Um, the, one, of the, the depart, one of the departments that I oversee um, is involved in this, in this type of business. And there are special permits that usually go with massage parlors because there's extra oversight that has to be done because 
they so frequently get shut down because of prostitution. And that, to me, indicates there may be an issue with sex trafficking and women being treated poorly. And who are the people behind these, these parlors? Now, again, you know, I know libertarians talk about sex work and it's the oldest profession and that people should be able to do that. And to, to a certain extent, if a woman wants to voluntarily engage in that profession, I believe she should have the right to do that. If she's a consenting adult willing to do that and a male's a consenting adult willing to do it, they should be able to do that. I don't know why it's the government's. I don't know why it's anybody's business. I don't know why it's the government's business. If the guy's married, well, then that's, in, that's business between him and his wife, obviously. But it shouldn't be the government's business. But when you're talking about women that are involuntarily doing this and are forced into doing this, that's a completely different issue. And I think that is what we're missing here. That has not been discussed at all in this whole thing. And at least not that I have seen in any mainstream media coverage of this. And so that needs to have more attention on it. And it should have more attention on it. Because I think that's what was the crux of this shooting. Now, now let's look at the Boulder shooting. <clears throat> it was very interesting that before we knew the, the race of the shooter, and again, this is just, you know, the context is, is that we just had had this shooting in recently in Atlanta. Now you have the guy in Boulder, Colorado, shooting 10 people die. Um, and the assumption was, is that it was another angry white male. And once the race was known of the person, and by the way, I bookmarked on Twitter, and I want to look at this book up, bookmark up. So let me take a look at this real quick, because this is really important. Somebody um, did a thread on all the different um, people that talked about that that chimed in after this Boulder shooting happened. A, bu a bunch of blue check marks, actually. Extremely tired of people's lives depending on whether a white man with an AR-15 is having a good day or not. Um, and then someone comments, "It's always an angry white man, always, and they are always, and they are always angry about women." The person, the original poster replied. Another person, another blue check mark. The shooter was taken into custody. In other words, it was almost certainly a white man again. If he were black or brown, he would be dead. And then after she found out that, hmm, it wasn't a white person. It was a person of um, Arab descent, actually, a Syrian male. The tone changed. All of a sudden, she said, let's mourn the victims, but not glorify the killer with the attention of having his, his name widely known. Mm-hmm. Another person. When a white guy with an AR-15 shoots and kills a bunch of people, it is the motive 
it, 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 is the motive really reality really relevant spoiler alert on the motive he was having feelings anger inadequacy and invisibility and impotence etc i.e not special so it goes on and on and on and even somebody posted a picture of him because he appeared to be a lighter-skinned individual and so it was assumed that he was white and the all the victims were white though um and and that seemed okay and here is Ilhan Omar the uh, a congresswoman from uh, Minnesota this is what she had to say on March 17th she retweeted a um a thread from um, Aaron, Aaron Rupar, who quoted um, uh, the sheriffs. Uh, Yesterday, it was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. His law enforcement official explains Robert Aaron Long's decision to kill eight people in a strange manner. So Elon Omar, of course, re- uh, uh, retweets this and goes, it's hard to understand why it's so normalized for law enforcement to protect the humanity of white mass murderers and their willingness to continually make excuses from them. Then after the shooting in Boulder, and finding out that this was not a white man, it was a Syrian man that did the shooting, the shooter's race or ethnicity seems front and center when they aren't white. Otherwise, it's just a mentally ill young man having a bad day. Narratives drive our responses to awful crimes against innocent people, Pay attention to these responses and who is targeted. Well, <laughs> I mean, I got to tell you, it, it, it's a little bit frustrating to uh, to hear that, right? Because, you know, she points out, you know, it, it seems like we don't have a problem when the perpetrator's white. The media has no problem saying that when they're not white they have no problem trying to downplay the race of the shooter but yet we're told it's the exact opposite of that i don't understand how anybody could reasonably and honestly argue that and of course we know the reason is because they're not honest about it we know that that i mean we know that's the issue People like Ilan Omar always going to take advantage of a situation. And it's not any different than your, your Ted Cruz's and your, your Kevin McCarthy's of the world either. You know, it's the same thing. It's the same thing on the left and right. So, but what this did, and because they couldn't use race, because the race, because it wasn't a white person that was, you know, that, that was the, the, the suspect. The victims were all white. So what can the media glam onto? Oh, that's right. The Second Amendment. Gun regulations in the spotlight again. The Second Amendment debate is happening. Now, Phil Robertson um, put, <laughs> put out a video, and he commented on somebody that um, he he does a, a segment call for blaze called in the woods with Phil and 
they talk he 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 talked about that, but maybe I'm gonna get a little ahead of myself on that. So you know, this always was this always starts with the Second Amendment argument. So the Second Amendment has been one of the most hot topic issues in the last fifteen years or so. And it really started as a result of the case um, in Washington, D.C., um, District of Columbia versus Heller back in 2008. And prior to that, there wasn't a lot of pushback on gun regulations. As a matter of fact, gun regulation has been around since the beginning of this country. Um, even in the founding area, the, sta- the states regulated guns. And um, it wasn't until after the 14th Amendment was passed that whether or whether, whether there was a challenge to whether or not the 14th Amendment's uh, Privileges or Immunities Clause um, was meant to protect the rights of individual to keep and bear arms from infringement by the states. The Supreme Court rejected this interpretation in United States versus Cruikshank uh, back in 1876. So that had been the law of the land in that the federal government could not regulate um, guns, but the states could, and they did. Um, you know, for example, um, right around the founding of our country, blacks were often prohibited from possessing firearms and militia weapons were frequently registered on government government rolls. Now, you have to keep in mind we were basically a, you know, this ragtag army, right, that that won against the British. This this militia that we kind of came together. And at the founding, the states had their own militias. Each one had their own militias. And the Federalists believed that there should be a central centralized militia, but they didn't want it to be so strong as to what the British uh, military was, because they felt that that would be a threat to the democracy. So the the Second Amendment was really a compromise in the, in that sense, in that we were going to have a well-regulated med- militia, which, which meant that we'd have a militia, a military, that was at the federal level, but it would be well-regulated so that it was, you know, so they're trained, they're disciplined, but also not so huge that it was something that we could worry about, and it were supplemented by the state militias, which would eventually become the National Guard apparatus, which would fall under ultimately under federal control with the states being able to, you know, the states staff them, but the federal government can call on the National Guard at any time. So that has evolved over time. But also, the, this, the, the federal government couldn't afford to fund a fully paid army. So they had to have these militias at the state level and have civilians ready to go fight. And they also wanted to make sure that the rights of people to bear arms was not infringed by the federal government 
to make sure that the federal government did not become too powerful. So it was really about federal power and also encouraging people to have weapons on hand in case there was an insurrection so that they could that, that if there's a sudden onset of war that they're ready to go. So that's what that was about. And Federalist number 29 actually talks about what militia means because I think that people think you know they look at the modern day definition of that militia but they don't put it in the context of what it was back then because again remember this country is the United States. And the reason that we're the United States is because we collectively came together because the states, the, the colonies themselves would have had no chance at defeating the British if they would have each been fighting on their own. But together, they could do it. But they still identified with themselves within their colonies. They weren't, a, prior to the founding of this country, they were separate entities from one another. And they only came together to fight a common enemy. And over time, obviously, the federal government has come has become so powerful that a lot of what used to be called "quote unquote" state rights have 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 been eroded. So, one of the things that the Second Amendment com- contemplated was that interaction between the state militias and having a federal militia, and but then making sure that the that there was a check and balance on that. By, by keeping by not dis, not allowing the federal government to disarm citizens. Well, that's the interpretation now people have today and they think that this the, the right to bear arms still has some semblance to that argument. Well, things have changed a little bit. Armies of the 21st century, are a little more sophisticated than than the 18th century, and that's but but people still believe this. And how do I know? Now I'm going to go to the Philip Robertson story. So he shared an article from the Bradenton Herald that argued the number of licensed hunters in the state of Wisconsin alone would constitute the 11th largest army in the world, outnumbering the people under arms in Iran as well as France and Germany combined. The article's author also pointed out that Wisconsin's 894,533 men, women, and youngsters were deployed in the woods of a single American state to hunt with firearms. They did so so efficiently efficiently and with expertise, no one was killed. Noting the stat in the article, Phil suggested that the millions of legal gun owners in this country would serve as the largest army in the world should be an Armed in, should there be an armed invasion from another country. Anyway, you slice it, this old guy is just saying there's going to be a bone to be chewed if some kind of foreign army comes in here, Phil said. We have a, we have a gigantic army of armed individuals waiting on them. America will forever be safe from foreign invasion with that kind of firepower. That's pretty cute. That's quaint. Um, I'm not going to throw the... I love the poorly educated um, barb at him um, because I don't believe he is poorly educated. Um, I mean, the man has, you know, built a very successful business with him and his fam, with him and his kids and his family. So you can't really fault him for that for for this belief. 
but to believe that somehow all these gun owners would be able to successfully defend ourselves against tanks, planes, nuclear weapons. I mean, if someone was actually going to seriously invade the United States, they'd have to do it with, um, with, with, they're going to do it with missiles. They're going to do it with airplanes. They're going to do it with nuclear weapons, most likely. And the, all the guns that you, you can, you can take all the people that have these guns combined and they wouldn't stand a, ch- a chance in hell because number one, there's too far spread out. That's number one. Number two, no one's just marching in with guns. If they're going to invade this country, they're not going to just march in with guns. They're, they're, you're going to be, the, the weapons they're going to have are going to be way, way better than anything anybody can buy, any civilian can buy, even without the regulations that we have right now. So it is a little bit naive to believe that we would actually have, you know, anybody with, you know, even an AR-15 would have a snowball's chance in hell in fighting against a foreign um, invasion of our country. And that, you know, the, the whole thing is, well, you know, the, the for, you know foreigners, our enemies want to see Americans disarmed because we are national security. Well, I think that's a little, I think that if some of the foreign, I think if Nor, if uh, Kim Jong-un were to hear that, um, he would probably, pro- he'd probably laugh at that is my guess. Because, you know, they know that the only way you're going to be able to invade a country like America is to do it with nuclear firepower and lots of it. And so, you know, the, the, the second, the second amendment argument that we need to keep it, we need to keep arms to be able to protect ourselves from our government and from other foreign countries is a bit silly at this point because that's not going to happen. That's not good. It's not going to do that. Um, I think that if people want to have firearms to protect their home, their their possessions, you know, protect themselves um, from criminals that would be armed similarly. That I don't have a problem with, honestly. Um, you know, you think about some of these mass shootings. If someone were carrying, could they have, you know, finished? Could they have ended these things sooner? before there were more lives lost? Possibly. Possibly. Um, you know, and, and, and there are, there's a lot of good statistics that show that gun ownership in, in certain areas does lead to less crime overall. Regulating guns, um, I think it's pretty clear, will not take guns out of the hands of, uh, out of, the hands of criminals. If someone wants to commit a crime, and last time I checked, murder is a crime, why would they shy away from committing the crime of obtaining a firearm that they shouldn't have? Now, apparently the shooter in Boulder actually passed a background check and got the firearm. But he was also flipping crazy. There's no doubt that mental health is, is a big factor here. I think mental health is probably the biggest issue that we're facing when it comes to these mass shootings. 
Again, people will get guns if they want to get them. If they want to commit these, these type of crimes, they will figure out a way to obtain these firearms. Because you could, you know, you could ban all guns, your gun sales to civilians tomorrow, and most people will abide by that because they're law-abiding citizens. They won't like it, but they'll do it. But what are you going to do about the hundreds of millions of weapons that are already out there? You don't think that criminals are going to get a hold of those? You don't think they already have hold of those? You don't think that convicted felons that are not supposed to have guns, that they don't actually have them, that some of them don't have that? You look at Chicago and all the shootings that happened there. Changing the gun laws apparently is not helping in some areas, you know, that have the strictest gun laws out there. They're, again, it, you're going to commit a crime. You're going to commit a crime to have that firearm too then. And so the the thing that really has made these mass shootings take, take off, and I think that, you know, you look at um, Columbine, and that was probably like the 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 kickstart of it all. But you look at who's involved with these things, and it is a mental health issue. You know that you know Ilhan Omar, you know, mocks that, and it's it's somebody you know, uh, you know, you're not feeling sorry for the person. You're just saying that you know, until you address the mental health issue, you're going to continue to have two major problems in this country: homelessness and mass shootings. They're not happening frequently, but frequently enough to know that there's a pattern. Anybody that would commit these heinous type of crimes has to have something wrong in their minds. They, they have to. I mean, there's no other explanation for it, right? I mean, that is it. They are mentally unstable. And so you look at all the people that have committed these crimes. Yes, they're white males, but they're all crazy white males. It's not just white males. I'm a white male. Does that mean you think I'm going to go out and shoot a bunch of people? Hell no, I'm not going to do that. There's no way. I'm also not going to go out and like rape somebody either. You know, I mean, you know, there's this stereotype, you know, people, people always want to talk about racial stereotypes and things like that. But when it comes to white people, they, it's fine to do that. But yes, they are white males that tend to do this. The overwhelming majority of these incidents are white males. But what do they all have in common? They all have mental health issues in common. So banning the weapon, number one, doesn't just magically make them all disappear. And it doesn't mean that they, they might have to work a little harder to get the, the firearm, but ultimately, there are ways for them to obtain it. Hell, there's ways for them to make it themselves nowadays. But until you address mental health, you'd actually, you'd actually probably fix two problems at once. You would fix, you would, you would reduce homelessness. You wouldn't eliminate it. But you'd also have a higher success rate in turning people around that do become homeless because of job issues, financial issues, but otherwise that people that want to have get help and get back on their feet. A lot of homeless people are homeless because of mental health and their mental health makes them choose that lifestyle and they don't want to get help.
They want to live the way they're living. And that's partially because they are mentally unstable. So those two issues have really started to increase and have really taken off. The timeline of those almost go hand in hand because we reduced mental health resources in this country. And we've continued to do that. Other countries, they talk about, well, they don't have guns there, but they do have guns. But you know what else they don't have? They don't have the mental health issues that we have because they either deal with their mental health and or they lock their mental, you know, the mentally ill people up. And here we aren't allowed to do that because of the Constitution. But okay, let's instead of doing that, then let's get them treatment and let's actually invest in the treatment. You fix that problem, this will start happening less and less. That is the key. And that is the correlating factor. If you look at the, the amount of mass shootings that have happened and you look at the number of homeless people that we have, if you look at those curves, they're prob those increases probably follow the same track. And they probably tie back to when we stopped putting money into you know state mental facilities and other mental health apparatus that we need to have in this country. That is what is the key. You fix that problem and you fix the mass shooting problem. At least it goes down. It doesn't go away, but it goes down. It's not the gun. And hey, I don't want criminals to have guns. I think you got to, but you got to then keep an eye on them then. You got to, you got to, you have to actually go for that. I'm for some semblance of gun regulation, similar to anything we've always done in this country. Again, people think that this is a new phenomenon, that gun regulation is a new phenomenon. And at the federal level, to, to a point, it is. And it wasn't until the Heller decision back in 2008 that a lot of that changed. But up until that point, there wasn't a really big deal, and everyone kind of accepted it. And now all of a sudden, oh, my God, they're taking our guns. They want to take our guns. It's like, no, well, we've always had those laws in the books, and we never did it before, so why does it change now? Because lobbyists tell them that's the case, and people are alarmists. That's the, bit, that's the bottom line. So anyway, those are my two cents on, the, on, on that issue. So anyway, thank you for joining us on The Moderate Podcast. Remember to visit our website at themoderatepodcast.com. We are on Twitter at the Mod Podcast one We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash themoderatepodcast. We are on Instagram at themoderatepodcast. We've recently passed 100, 100 subscribers on um, our Instagram page. So we've been trying to slowly grow that. So that's been great. So thank you very much. But if you haven't subscribed there already, <clears throat> please do so. So... Until next week, next week is Easter Sunday. I'm not sure exactly if I'm going to do a show or not. I might actually skip next week because of that holiday. Um, so if I do, we'll see you in two weeks. But other than that, just keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on your subscription. If I'm here, you'll see it. If I'm not, you won't. I'll probably post something on Twitter, though, if I am going to skip the show. So keep an eye out for that. So anyway, until next time, stay safe and keep it real.